Heavenly Father, as we begin this true story of a young woman that you put into a position to save your people, I ask, Lord, that you would be gracious with us as you point us to Christ. As we look at the chaos in the court of King Xerxes and look upon the chaos in our own country right now and for many in our own lives, Lord, I pray that you would show us that even in the midst of confusion and evil, we know that you are preparing salvation for your people. We ask, Lord, that you would be gracious in revealing yourself not only as our Savior and King, but as the one who preserves our souls all the way to the end. And in your revelation this morning, Father, I pray that you would show us the great court of Jesus Christ. And as we gaze upon our heavenly King and contemplate the court that belongs to His people, we'll be overwhelmed with a sense of joy and satisfaction regardless of our circumstances. Father, we're asking for a a reorientation of how we are seeing things in our own lives in this country. As we approach 2021, Father, we have reason for great hope not because of our politicians and not because of our laws, but because of our Lord and Savior, our great King Jesus Christ. And so we ask, Lord, this morning for a true hope upon your people here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church and all your true churches throughout the world who are faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through your word. We ask it in his name for your glory. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Uh, I, I don't know that there is a single chorus and a single hymn or song that we sing that would be better for 2021 for your life to be able to say, all I have is Christ, Jesus is my life. Wonderfully simple and yet utterly life-changing if that's true. Let's make that our chorus for this year, amen? I bet, I bet most people... Christian or non, regardless of their thoughts on COVID-19 or all the election nonsense, would look back on 2020 and say it's been a bit unorthodox, not what we would consider a, a normal year. We've seen sickness, death, we've seen unemployment, economic shutdowns, never-ending shelter-in-place mandates, especially here in Santa Clara County. We've seen fear and fear and more fear. I've heard many sayings, things like, what a horrible year, I'm so glad it's over. I can't wait for things to get back to normal. Or the one I've heard most is 2021 will be better. Will be better. Now, most of you know that these are vacuous statements. We make them to feel better about ourselves. But they do reveal, I believe, a lack of understanding in the person of God and his active role in human history. We say them to make ourselves feel better, but we reveal what we believe about God as a providential God. My beloved, COVID-19 did not come on us by chance. The idiotic 
and irrational economic and policy decisions made in 2020 did not just happen. 2020, like every year since the dawn of creation, 2020 has taken place under the planned, listen, sovereign, providential hand of God. Every event according to His will. In other words, we ought not wish away a year because it was difficult. And we ought not mourn the future because it is uncertain or daunting. Instead, as Christians, we want to always be cognizant of what God is doing every year, every month, and every day. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 5, we are to look carefully then on how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Listen to this, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Why make the best use of our time? Because God is always working. God is always moving. God is always directing history to its determined end, which is the consummation of history in the glorification of Jesus Christ and his people. Always working for the preservation and prosperity of his church. Even when it doesn't seem like it, even when God seems utterly silent, silent or absent, the Bible teaches the exact opposite. We're told in Lamentations 3, listen, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain? Let us test and examine our ways and what? Return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. The psalmist says something very similar in Psalm 135.6. He says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. He is God. He's God. My beloved, to wish away time or to fear the future is to wish away opportunities to experience the living God in the present. Over the next several weeks, by God's grace, if he so decrees, we will spend time looking at the book of Esther. I have not had a chance to preach this. Um, I've thought about preaching it for years. I'm thankful that we have an opportunity. I believe it will be very timely in light of our historical moment as a culture and as a people. It is an historical narrative in the Old Testament. It is a story. It is a true story of how God miraculously saved his people from complete extinction through a queen by the name of Esther. When you get to the end of the book, and by God's grace we will, you will draw one conclusion, and that is God is, was behind it all. That will be where we end. God planned it, God moved it, God directed it. It was his doing all along. Though seemingly absent, his name, you know this, not mentioned one time in the entire book. And yet we see him working in great detail, not only to save his people, but in preserving this text to encourage us today to stay the course in Christ. So if you asked yourself last year, where is God in all the turmoil? Or maybe you said, why should I continue following this Christ? It's only going to get harder for me. As an evangelical Christian, I will be canceled. I may lose my job. I may lose my friends. Why continue on this path when if I go to the world, it can be so much easier the book of Esther has an answer as old as the ages 
And that is God is behind it all. Nothing is happening before, now, or in the future that is not decreed by God. He is in it. He is moving history to the climactic end of the return of Christ. And therefore, you, Christian, have every reason to not only be hopeful, but to say, I will not assimilate. I will not be as the world is because things are so difficult for me right now. Amen? So I want to begin our study in Esther by setting the scene for you. It's always hard whenever you do a new book because there's so much to talk about, and yet we don't have that much time, right? You give me 45, 50 minutes, I may push you a little more than that today. The book of Esther is so masterfully written. In fact, if you read through it this week, you realize it is a joy to read. It begins like a Broadway play. Everybody's seated, the lights are dimmed, and the curtains are pulled back, and we are teleported to the court of King Xerxes, the sovereign ruler of the Persian Empire 500 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And what I'd like for us to see today from the passage is this simple teaching. Listen. In the midst of chaos, God prepares a way for his people. When things seem totally out of control, God is actively working to prepare a way of salvation for his people, including you. So when evil has seemingly won and God is seemingly absent and you are considering maybe forsaking Christ, maybe hiding, God remains faithful to prepare a way for you too. So I would like to examine God's preparation of salvation by looking at three things from the text today. Number one, the chaos in the court of man, the utter chaos. Number two, the preparation in the court of God. And number three, the beauty of the eternal court. The chaos in the court of man, the preparation in the court of God, and the beauty of the eternal court. All right, are you, are you awake? Because this is a fantastic story, so don't let me ruin it for you, all right? All right. Point number one, the chaos in the court of man. Look at uh, chapter one, verse one. Now in the days of Xerxes, the Xerxes who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, that would be 484, 483, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Long time. So Xerxes is the son of Darius I, and he reigned over the Persian Empire from 486 to 465 B.C., about 21 years. Biblically, he falls, now listen, this is important, biblically he falls between Zerubbabel and the reconstruction of the temple in 515, and the return of many captives under Ezra and Nehemiah in 458. And so he's situated, some of, the, some of the Jews had gone back already in 538, but it's before Ezra and Nehemiah, and that's where we are. And so even though many had gone back, many Jews still remained throughout the empire. And Xerxes reigned over, at that point in time, the largest empire in the world. 
He reigned over 2.1 million square miles. So on the east, he was to the border of India. On the south, Ethiopia. On the west, he ruled over, he ruled over Egypt, Greece, and Eastern Europe, and then the northern border of what we would call Russia today. Massive empire, over 100 million people under his sovereign authority, 2 to 3 million approximately were Jews. We get a glimpse of what Xerxes thought about himself from Xerxes' own mouth, or maybe his own engraver. Archaeologists found at his palace on a cornerstone something that read like this. Listen, I am Xerxes, the great king, the only king, the king of this big and far-reaching earth. Whatever is commanded by me, they do, and they abide by my laws. So says the great Xerxes. And although engraved in stone and preserved that we might read it today, we open up Esther chapter 1 and we find anything but a king whose subjects are obeying his every command. So while seated in his winter palace in Susa, that was on the that would be western Iran near the border of Iraq. While seated in Susa, the king wanted to show off. Look at verse 4. It says, The riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. So he's not showing off the kingdom, he's showing off himself. And so he invites all the officials and the servants. He invites the armies of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors and the provinces. And over a 180-day period of time, he has people coming and going and seeing and marveling at his glory. And then at the end of the 180 days of glory gazing, people must have been a bit tired, Xerxes threw a feast, and it was to be a feast, a feast. Look at verse 5. A feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So at the end of the 180 days, there was going to be a seven-day feast, the culmination of the glory that Xerxes wanted for himself. And he held it in a particular palace so materialistic, so opulent, it revealed the excessive nature of this king. White cotton curtains, violet hangings, marble pillars, couches made of gold and silver. You ever afraid of spilling something on your couch? Marble, mother of pearl, precious stone floors. No renovation on HGTV ever looked like this. Even the drinks, look, and even the drinks were told in verse 7 were served in golden vessels. I wonder how many made it and stayed in the, in the palace. Vessels of different kinds, which means they were each unique, and the royal wine, the best wine in the kingdom, was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And the feast, we are told, each man was free to drink as much or as little as he wanted. Verse 8, there's no compulsion, said the king. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Sounds hideous, doesn't it? Given the nature of man, under the power of this king, it sounds like a wedding of some of our Hollywood elite, or maybe a a Saudi prince. The author wants us to be impressed and revolted at the exact same time. Impressed by the magnitude and the expenditure and the power and revolted at the grotesque fact that it was all squandered for Xerxes' glory. It was all to show off himself to his subjects. It is a life I believe many, listen, including Christians, dream about. Six-month vacations, living in an opulent home, 
But all was not well in the king's court. His queen Vashti, she's having a separate feast, was not, which was not uncommon. The men and women often would have a separate feast. But what is uncommon is what happened in verse 12. On the seventh day, we're told in verse 10, on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine, meaning what? He was drunk. He's drunk. Xerxes sent seven of his advisors, eunuchs, who served in his presence, verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti, listen now, before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. For 180 days, the king showed off all his prized possessions. For seven days, he lavished food and excessive drink upon his guest. And now the climax of the climax. At the end of six months, he was going to bring the beautiful Queen Vashti before his guests with her crown to display his glory as his trophy wife. Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Oops. I don't think Xerxes saw that one coming. He commanded his wife to appear in her finest royal robes, crowned with the crown of her as a queen, to be paraded before drunken men. And she said no. Rightfully so. He was treating her like a doll, like an object to be lusted after, like someone to be consumed, not like his wife, and certainly not like someone created in the image of God. Now Vashti's rebellion enraged the king because it exposed his vanity and his lack of power. It exposed his vanity and his lack of power. This is the great king of the Persian Empire, the largest Persian Empire to that time. He had command over 100 million people, and yet he's powerless to get his own wife to obey a single command to come and present herself before guests. No wonder he was so mad. My beloved, this is fantastically hysterical. It's satire. And it's meant to be laughed at. You're supposed to read it and, and laugh hysterically because what was happening was contrary to God's design. And so God makes a mockery of it. All the self-glorification, the drunkenness, the opulence, Xerxes ordering his wife to come and be a, a display of vanity before a bunch of drunken men, it's all vanity. The king's rule, his marriage, his court, it was all a veneer that anyone with a discerning eye would have found utterly ridiculous. My beloved, one of the things the author of Esther wants us to see from the very onset is the vanity and foolishness of any man or any government that sets himself or itself against the ways of God. The absolute vanity and foolishness for any man or any government that sets his ways or its ways against the ways of the Lord. Now the lust for power and wealth, they are false gods today. They have been false gods since Genesis chapter 3. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, we must, by God's grace, see through the charade. We have to be able to see things clearly and come back to our understanding of our relationship with God through Christ. God is seated upon his throne, my beloved. 
And he is not mocked. We're told in Psalm 2, listen. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth, Xerxes, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. And then God says, Psalm 2, 4, he who sits in the heavens, what? Laughs. He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. My beloved, that means instead of you, Christian, now listen, Christian, instead of you getting all bent out of shape when you find out that your governor violates his own shelter-in-place mandates and uses your tax dollars to go up to Napa and fine dine in one of the best restaurants they have with his cronies, it means that you will not get all bent out of shape, but you too will laugh with God. God is not mocked. It means, my beloved, listen, this may be a little more difficult, When you see an angry mob storm the U.S. Capitol and all the talking heads condemning this act as against a sacred institution, you, Christian, you'll condemn the act as well because we do not advocate violence. But you will not be fooled in thinking that the halls of Congress are anything but sacred. For the past 48 years, Our esteemed members of Congress have failed to overturn Roe v. Wade, listen, at the expense of 64 million babies. Nothing sacred about those halls. God is not mocked. He holds them in derision. I'm not advocating what took place, but we shouldn't be surprised. God judges justly. The court of man wants you to put all your hopes in the policies and the laws of men pursuing luxury, pursuing power, drunkenness too. But the mockery we see in the court of Xerxes and our own political institutions ought to drive us passionately, fervently today to the court of God. It should drive us to God where there is true justice, where people are not consumed as commodities. In the court of the living God, we see not only the hope that he offers in the midst of this chaotic world. But we see, if we have a discerning eye, that he is actively working in the midst of it. When we go to the court of God, it gives us hope that our king reigns and we will see closely, if we look, that God's not silent. And God is actively working, even in the midst of all that's taken place over this past week and months and 2020. He's working. Which takes me to my second point, the preparation in the court of God. What was Xerxes to do? I mean, this is embarrassing. All the guests are waiting for this final display of glory and power. Queen Vashti's going to come in her royal attire with her crown on her head, and she's going to present herself in all of her beauty before these drunken men. And she says no. And Xerxes blows a gasket. So Xerxes does what many kings did back then. He calls his wise men if you would consider them wise. Look at verse 15. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Xerxes delivered by the eunuchs? There was no law in place, and they loved, the Persians loved their laws. In fact, when a law was passed, it could not be repealed. But there was no law in place. What do we do with a queen who says, no, it hasn't happened? How are they to respond to this disobedience? One of Xerxes' advisors, a prince, 
Memucan recommends another command, another law equally foolish. He likely gave the counsel to assuage the king's anger. It wasn't good to be in the presence of an angry king. You could lose your life. And so what does he do? He takes the entire incident and he blows it into fantastic proportion, adding to the satire of the story. He argues that Vashti's rebellion will ignite a feminist movement throughout the empire unprecedented in world history. That's what he's arguing. Look at verse 17. She will cause all women to look at their husbands with contempt. Verse 18, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. And so, Memucan recommends to the king another law. Let's pass another edict. Let's send it out to the entire empire. Let's write it in every language so that everybody knows that one, Vashti, will not be allowed into the presence of the king ever again. And number two, that someone better, someone better will take her place. So the king is pleased with this. The decree is written. It's sent out to all the provinces in all the language for this purpose. Look at verse 20. This law will ensure that all women will give honor to their husbands. And then in verse 22, every man will be master in his own house. Uh, That sounds about right, doesn't it? How do we encourage women to honor their husbands and men to be good masters of their homes? Well, we should just pass another law. Pass a law. Jesus said in Matthew eleven nineteen 19 that wisdom is proved right by her actions. Obviously, Xerxes and the seven wise men did not understand that the law does not change the human heart. The first edict by Xerxes commanding his wife to present herself before these drunken men was insufficient to change her heart. She didn't want to do it, so she said no. And so all the wise men and the king, who said he was pleased with the idea, thought, let's pass another law. The first one didn't work. Let's pass another. Told throughout the entire kingdom, that will do the trick. My beloved, the failure of a law to change the heart of man obviously escaped the king and these wise men. But this is the world that God's people have lived in for centuries. A world in which the reins of power are often in the hands of the incompetent and oftentimes the immoral. And the incompetent and the immoral think that by passing laws, by passing more laws, and then more laws on top of that, they will change the hearts of men, and then therefore they will change society. Is that not what we see? Thousands of laws being passed every year in this country, state, local, and federal level, thinking if this law is in place, hearts will change. How long has that taken place? Over 200 years. What's changed? Nothing. Not from the law. Even Martin Luther King, even Martin Luther King, who was fighting for legislative change and civil rights, he understood the weakness of the law to change the heart. Speaking to students at Western Michigan University in 1963, listen to what he said. He said, the law can restrain the heartless, so it's good to pass it if it's a good law, but the law cannot change the heart if the problem of racism is to be solved in the final sense, hearts must be changed. Hearts must be changed. Now as Christians, my beloved, we believe in good laws, right? We believe in godly laws, We believe they are civil blessings. We believe that when they're in place, we ought to abide by them. 
We ought to honor those in right authority to follow them, to enforce them. But we also know that no law has the power to change a person's heart. What was the struggle for the Israelites following their encounter with God at Mount Sinai? Did they not have a law? You say, well, no, they not only had the law, the Ten Commandments, they had many other specific laws telling them how to live as God's people. And yet, what did they do? They rebelled. They were a stiff-necked people. Not because they didn't have the law, they had it, but their hearts hadn't changed. Their hearts remained against God. That's why, my beloved, when the Apostle Paul taught on how wives are to be helpmates to their husbands and submit to them in all things. And when the Apostle Paul taught to husbands to love and cherish and care for their wives as Christ does the church, he gives the imperative after the promise that we have in Christ, after the transformation of heart and mind that the believer has in Christ. Listen to what he said. Listen to the prayer in Ephesians 3, two chapters before the imperatives on how to live as godly husbands and godly wives. He prayed that the church, they would be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner beings so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and with our hearts be rooted and grounded in love. Real lasting change takes place not through new laws, but hearts changed by the love of God in Christ. My beloved, if the church wants to see real transformation in our own community, then we must be faithfully proclaiming the gospel. We must be actively making disciples. If we do not participate in that great endeavor of God using the gospel to redeem sinners, then we should have no expectation of real change in our country. It will not come through a law. We know that. And yet, who will proclaim the gospel? Who will make disciples if not the church? It won't be our politicians. It won't be Congress. This, my beloved, is what God has been revealing and doing since Genesis chapter 3 throughout all of human history. He restores hearts and restores lives by pouring out his love and his mercy and his grace, grace upon sinful creation. He's been preparing and implementing and bringing his plan of love and mercy from the very beginning, even in the chaotic courts of King Xerxes. In the royal court of Xerxes, it appears that God is nowhere to be found. I mean, Xerxes is running around an unchecked, erato-megalomaniac, grandstanding for months, encouraging and promoting drunkenness, licentiousness, laziness amongst his subjects, demanding edicts of his own wife that are ungodly, passing a, 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 an equally foolish and ineffective edict for the entire empire. But simply because God cannot be seen working overtly, you don't read Esther 1 and see the parting of a sea or God descending on a mountain or manna appearing in the palace. But simply because we do not see God working does not mean that God is not working. For His people... He's not mentioned at all in the book, and yet we see God in the court of Xerxes. He's the unseen director, not only in Xerxes' court, but of all human history. He's arranging all things we know for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Do you think, do you think honestly that Donald Trump lost by chance? 
Do you think the two Democratic senators, there's just one in Georgia, won by chance? Ask yourself this, my beloved. Why did Xerxes make such a foolish demand of his wife in the first place? Why did Vashti throw away her entire future? Noble cause, but futile. And why did the king and his wise counselors come up with a law that required them to replace Vashti with someone better? Each of these events, you could say, well, there's nothing supernatural about them. Sinful pride, self-glory, rash behavior, foolish counsel. Each one can be understood in the context of our fallen nature. And yet at the exact same time, what do we know? We know that each event happened in the exact order at the exact time to ensure that Esther would take Vashti's place and be a type of savior for God's people. We see the supernatural working of God even here in chapter one. Coincidence? Well, there's no such thing as coincidence in God's economy. God is sovereign. And therefore, each event has been and is orchestrated by God to prepare a way for a Savior, for His people. Why? Because in all things, you know this, Romans 8, 28, in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him. That's His church, who have been called according to His purpose. All these things taking place for the glory of God's name and the good of His people. And yet, you know what? In not one of these events would have seemed significant to the Jews at the time they were happening. None of them. One queen's out, another queen's in. They don't care. They're trying to buy meat from the market that day. But in hindsight, they would come to see in intricate detail all the work that God had been doing, all the preparation, all the providential planning. In fact, so significant would this day become that they would institute the celebration of Purim, an annual Jewish holiday that commemorates God's people being saved at the hands of Haman. So it is in our lives, my beloved. And we have oftentimes, we have no idea what God is doing in the midst of the chaos right now. For some of you, he may seem hidden. For some of you, you may say, he's not answering my prayers. I'm nervous, I'm afraid, I'm anxious. I cannot see clearly simply because it doesn't seem like he's moving, and simply because we don't understand what's happening, does not mean that God is not active. The Bible teaches, and this chapter certainly reveals, that God is active and moving for the good of his people all the time. All the time. They're able to look back, the Jews, and say, oh my goodness, look what he did to save us from certain extinction." Most of you, if you've walked with Christ long enough, you can look back too at times in your life where it seemed so chaotic and at times hopeless and yet you saw God carry you through. You saw him work certain details in your life and now you look back in retrospect and you could write a book. You could have your own book testifying to the invisible hand of God working actively in your life. That means, my friends, that when you are most tempted to think that God has forgotten you in your moment, maybe praying like Isaiah did when he said, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God, you can be certain that he is actively working for your well-being. 
In other words, his quiet work does not mean that he's not working. His quiet work does not mean that he's not working. Well, before Haman's plan to kill the Jews, God had already caused Vashti to be removed, Esther to be replaced, and Mordecai, a Jew, to become a friend of the king. All before the plan had taken place. God is faithful to keep his promises to his people. And that means, my beloved, listen, here's a word of encouragement. Even before your problems arise, even before crisis comes, God is actively working and providing a way out. Before it ever happens, God's got a plan of salvation for you. And that means we can, just like Abraham, as he and Isaac walked up the mountain to perform the sacrifice, the unthinkable sacrifice, like Abraham, we can say, God will provide. Abraham did not know how, but somehow God did. God made sure that ram was not only born and healthy, but up on that mountaintop, caught in the thicket at the exact right time. Chance? Not a chance. Not a chance. You can know in the midst of your struggles that God is preparing a way for you out of the chaos that he too will provide. Now we read chapter 1 and you probably have said, wow, we have a lot of leaders like Xerxes today. And you're right, we do. You might even say we have a lot of laws like Xerxes' laws and we probably have more. And I think you'd be right in saying that we live in a time when God's name is not mentioned in the public square. So we have leaders like Xerxes, laws like Xerxes, God's name is not mentioned. But regardless of our circumstances right now, regardless of how daunting 2021 may be for you, you can know, Christian, you can know in your heart that your God, your heavenly Father, is actively and diligently working for you and his church to bring about his plan of redemption in his son, Jesus Christ. You can know that. As hard as 2020 was for some of you, as fearful as you are of 2021, you can know that in the midst of it all, God is working actively for your well-being. And if God is on your side, my beloved, then you have no reason to worry. His quiet work is not a lack of work. So in the chaotic courts of men, and they are chaotic today, and maybe the chaotic courts of your own life, God is preparing your glorification in his son. All right? All right, so we've seen the chaos in the court, preparation in the court of God. He's working. I want to close one last point here, the beauty of the eternal court. By royal order, Queen Vashti is disposed and makes the way for Esther to take the stage. Vashti's out, Esther's in. Now, according to their new law, look at verse 19 again, latter part of verse 19. Remember, this law cannot be rescinded now. Vashti was never again to come before him, King Xerxes, and the king was to give her royal position to another who is better than she. So Esther, this unknown orphaned Jewish girl with no credentials to her name, is handpicked by God to replace Vashti, become the queen, king, queen, and be the type of Christ and Savior for God's people. 
She will be the heroine that we look at for the next several weeks. And she is a type of Christ. Not only acting as a savior during the reign of Xerxes, but more importantly, pointing to the ultimate savior, Jesus Christ, who would come to save sinners during the reign of sin and death. Far worse than Xerxes. And as we close today, I want, I want to show you how much better this Savior and his court, how much better they are. And by God's grace, encourage you today and for the next several weeks to take your eyes off the chaos in the courts of men. Some of you are watching too much TV. Some of you are listening to the wrong news. To take your eyes off the courts of men and to put your eyes on the courts of Christ and his kingdom. And in so doing, I... I do believe that if you fix your eyes upon Jesus, he invites you in to participate and rejoice now in the midst of the chaos because of who God is and who you are in him. One historian noted that Xerxes inherited none of the good qualities of his predecessors, but, quote, only a love of opulent display which progressively sapped his moral fiber. Whatever moral fiber he had, the opulence took it out. Xerxes was a glory-starved megalomaniac who treated his wife like a piece of meat and his subjects like needy, codependent drunkards. But unlike the drunken decrees of this immoral king, our king, our God, does not use people as disposable commodities. He created us, male and female, in his image to know him intimately, to experience him personally, and by his grace reflect his glory to the world. Through Christ, God graciously invites each and every one of us this morning into his royal courts. Not to be used, not to be put on display, and not to be shamed. He invites us in this morning to be loved by him, and to love him in return. He doesn't do this by passing a law, telling you you have to come, forcing you to obey. He's not foolish like Xerxes or the supposed wise men. Rather, he woos us. You know that term woo? That's an older term, to draw in. In fact, Jesus, in John chapter 6, verse 44, when he's explaining to the Jews who were complaining in Capernaum about him being the bread of life, he said, no one can come to me unless the Father himself, what? Draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That word draw in the Greek, that means to draw in by attraction, to draw in by wooing, to draw in by love. And so God invites us in to his courts, not by commanding a law, but by changing our hearts and in changing our hearts, we'll want to obey his law. Vashti refused to obey her husband, King Xerxes, because all he wanted to do was feed his pride and pleasure with her, listen, natural beauty. And she was supposed to be beautiful. How different the love of our husband, Jesus Christ, for his bride. My beloved, I don't say this to be mean, but when Christ took his bride, the church, when Christ took you, he took those of us who are glory-starved drunkards, who by nature are completely unattractive. He took rebellious, sinful, God-hating, law-breaking sinners like us, and he did the absolute unthinkable. Unlike Xerxes, our husband, 
out of his unmatched love for us, laid down his life on a Roman cross, becoming a suitable sacrifice in our place. Not only to pay for our sins that we might be forgiven, but to make us beautiful, to make us attractive before a holy God, to make us morally pure. The Bible, you see, teaches that through the Son's death and resurrection, God is able not only to forgive us of our sins, but impart to us the beauty of Jesus Christ. And that means if you are in Christ right now, if you've made a profession of faith and turned from your sins, and the Holy Spirit dwells in you, my beloved, you are beautiful. You are supremely attractive in the eyes of God right now. Not because of your inherent beauty, because of the beauty you received from Christ, but it is real and it is eternal. Jesus Christ used his blood as fabric so that he's able to call you into the throne room of God and drape you in that royal garment, making you deeply beautiful and deeply loved. Jesus Christ used his crown of thorns in order to place a true crown of glory on your head so that you might be presented before the Father in the throne room, beautiful, cherished, and loved. My beloved, I ask you sincerely, if every good thing you have, if the very righteousness that you are clothed with and equipped with before God comes from the hand of a savior and a husband and a king like this, how how can your heart not be moved? If this all comes through the sacrifice of our loving husband, how can it not touch our hearts this morning? How can your heart not burn right now with a deep attraction and love and admiration for Christ? With such a husband like this calling us in to the throne room of God, calling us to obey we should be overjoyed and delighted in it. To come to him, to hear him speak, and to do every single thing he asks us to do because he is so radiant and his love is so beautiful. Certainly a king and a husband and a savior like this who has done so much for those of us so unworthy, so unattractive, can ask, I would argue, any level of obedience from us and expect from us a loving yes, amen in return. It's the only right response, my beloved, in light of the sacrifice and love we have in Christ. It means, wives, that when Paul calls you to do something very difficult in Ephesians 5.22, to submit to your own husbands as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. When you are called to that radical submission to your husband, Instead of embracing the feminism of our culture, you will joyfully say yes, amen, and obey. Not only because it's good for you and your family and your marriage, but because of the sacrifice that your true husband, Jesus Christ, made for you. And you will do that in love. It is a law, it's imperative, but that's not why you do it. You do it because of the love of Christ in your heart. And that means, husbands, listen, your job's even harder. When you're called in Ephesians 5.25 to love your wives, how? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for no higher revelation of love. 
Husbands, you will sacrifice, you will serve, you will nourish your wife, even when you don't want to. And you will do so with a glorious yes, amen, because of the sacrifice and love you have in your Savior and King. In other words, my beloved, we will strive to know and obey. The Christian will strive to know and obey all the laws of God, which are so good for us, and we will do it because our, our hearts have been captivated by Christ. Changed hearts that lead to a changed life. I pray, my beloved, that you are not fooled by the courts of men, by the parties, the money, the wine, the self-glory. The Lord has prepared a banquet for his people, and it is infinitely better than the one we see here in the courts of Xerxes. And when he summons the church, his bride, at this wedding feast of the Lamb, when he summons us, with the royal robe of Christ and the crown of glory. It will not be to expose our shame. Your sins are forgotten. Your sins are no more. He will bring us before the Father in the presence of all the angels and he will present us. Listen. He will present you royal, beautiful, morally perfect as Christ is. And so radiant and so beautiful will you be that all present will turn and they'll look to the king who brought this to pass. And they will give honor and glory to Jesus Christ. They will take what Xerxes said about himself and they will turn to Christ and they will say, you are the true great king. You are the only king. You are the king of this big and far-reaching earth. Not Xerxes. We can see from the passage today why Queen Vashti was reluctant to appear before Xerxes. But who, who in their right mind would deny or refuse an invitation like this from a king like Jesus? Who? Have you refused the call to come to Christ? I'm not just talking about salvation. Are you refusing to come to the call of Christ and the obedience in your life right now? to repent of your sins, the sins of today, and to put your trust and your faith in Christ to save you. If you have refused it, then you too, listen, like Queen Vashti, you'll be cast out of the presence of the king forever. So says the law of God. Instead of experiencing God's steadfast love and mercy forever and ever, you will, in rejecting Christ, You will provoke him to anger and you will experience his wrath. A wrath, according to John Owen, is described as he will not exercise towards anyone but those who deny and despise his compassion. Why would you despise the compassion of God? Why would you choose to die instead of joining Christ in his court at the wedding feast of the Lamb? My beloved, saved or not, I pray that you would lay down your resistance, that you would come into the beauty and the majesty and the goodness of God's eternal court to feast with him this morning. The courts of men want to make us slaves, binding us with their ungodly laws and offering us the easy pleasures of the flesh. Christ, your true king, calls you to flee 
from the ways of this world, the foolishness and the temptation. And he says, fly to my court. Fly into my presence. Come to my table. He invites everyone. You will only exclude yourself if you are not there. He will not do this by force. He will not make you do it. He will woo you with his love. I want you, my beloved, to trust that God is at work as he promised. Right now, preserving and prospering his people. Even in the midst of all the surrounding chaos and darkness. When you think that we've hit the pinnacle of evil, God is working. Be not afraid. God is working. No, at this very moment, he is preparing a place for you in his eternal court. A place of honor, a place of glory, and a place of love that according to the word of God, you cannot miss because God will keep you. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we spend too much time listening to those in positions of power, too much time watching and reading things that only bring discouragement and despair. Instead of turning to you and turning to your word and seeing that in fact, even in the midst of all the chaos that we see in the courts of men, you are preparing a way of salvation for your people. Father, I ask that you would forgive us for taking our eyes off Christ, for not seeing that the king is upon his throne and he is ruling at this very moment. And as we have such great despair over 2021, Father, convict our hearts to see that there is no such thing as despair for the believer in Christ. That our kingdom is secure. That our king is returning. And that he is sovereignly decreeing all that is taking place. I ask, Lord, that you would make us wise of these times. That we would not be a people filled with fret and worry, but would be strong and courageous knowing that even though we may not be able to see you at this moment, we know that you're working for our best interest, for the interest of your church and the glory of your name. And if that's true, Father, then what do we have to fear? I ask, Lord, that you would reveal to us this morning the beauty that we have in Christ. Reveal to us right now, Father, the great work that he's already accomplished on our behalf, that we might know that in the midst of the chaos of our own lives, that we are holy because Christ is holy. We receive that from him freely, and therefore, we are secure. I pray, Father, that you would bless Cambrian Park Baptist Church in 2021 with a people who dwell in your courts, looking upon your face, hearing your voice, and obeying you out of love. In Christ's name I pray, amen.